Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we, we thank you, Lord God, for who you are, for what you've done. We thank you for your grace upon our lives. Thank you for the family of God, the local church, Lord. There's nothing like it on earth. And we're coming to these mighty subjects, but Lord God, they're not mighty in one sense because it's a reality. And it's a reality we can rejoice in because of all you've done, Jesus. So I do pray that while some, some of these topics will open old wounds possibly and old hurts, Lord God, but also I pray that each of us will be certain of what happens when we leave this earth and be able to face that with joy and peace and absolute assurance of our eternity with you for your glory. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to just recap quickly, if I may, uh, what we looked at last time. Uh, the whole series is more than just what happens when we die. We're going to be looking at what heaven is like, what is hell like. Uh, we'll touch on that today, but in more detail later on. We're going to look at judgment. We're going to look at the return of the king. That's my favorite one because there's a beautiful description in Revelation about what Jesus what he'll look like when he comes and I just love that one but I won't go down there I'll start that now uh, so there's a whole multitude of topics we're going to cover but to begin with this last one and this one is really addressing the issue of what happens when we die and where, how do we prepare ourselves for that day and the great thing is that this subject will actually affect every single one of us uh, I don't care if you're 12 years old, if you're 15 years old, you're 17 years old, uh, how high do I go? If you're 60 years old or a little bit more, every one of us will encounter a time, unless Jesus returns of course, when actually our earthly bodies will fade. Now that may be through old age, it may be through sickness, it may be through tragedy, I hope not, but we want to serve you well by preparing each one of us for this event. So you young people, this is for you today. I hope you have a long and happy life, but none of us can be assured of having a long life on earth, but we can be assured of having a happy life. So let's have a look then. So last time I raised the question, why would we do such a series? Why would we look at such detail and be so casual? about death should I say well I'd like to suggest because it affects our daily choices when I understand what's going to happen to me when I leave this earth it affects the very purpose of my life it affects every decision I make is made in light of that eternity it affects how I use my resources what my career path should be who I marry. It affects every aspect of my life. Secondly, understanding what happens when we die and also where we go to and where those who don't know Jesus go to brings a missional perspective to our lives. The horrors of hell and the joy of heaven should not leave us indifferent to our desiring to be a witness of Jesus so that others can come and know him as well. Thirdly, I suggest this subject matter affects 
each of us in sickness and suffering. An eternal perspective will bring balance at these times. If I'm suffering or if I'm in sickness, I I understand I'm passing through. This is not it. This does not define my life. But also because I'm passing through to a greater place and I want to live for the glory of God in suffering and sickness, there is opportunity to demonstrate to those around me my assurance of what lies beyond for me. So even in suffering and sickness, whilst we pray to be healed, we can live to the glory of God. And then also in worship. Knowing that death cannot hold us. Knowing that death isn't the end, but a mere step. And if you remember last time I tried to explain, a blink, a moment, passing through but of course the minute the minute there's another front word the moment we die time stops anyway whatever word you want to use but between that moment when our earthly body gives up we're in the presence of Jesus and knowing that we can be certain of this because of what he has given me freely through his grace and his love and drawing me to himself And in his mercy, forgiving me of my sins and assuring me of my eternity. My goodness, can I ever have an excuse not to worship? Does it really matter what's going on in my life? That I cannot worship God in light of what will go on in my eternity? Of course not. But I also suggested last time that we're not going to know all the answers. And we're going to come across some difficult doctrines and truths. Very shortly we'll come across one. And so we have to approach this subject with humility. But also with reverence that God is God. And often when you're wrestling through difficult doctrines, you just find yourself in that place. I have to trust God. He is all wise. He is merciful. He is gracious. He does know best, even though... I do not understand it. So we come with humility as well. We touched on what happens when a Christian dies. (coughs) Excuse me. The Bible refers to when a Christian dies as they fall asleep. Not to describe the state they're in, but to differentiate it from being a final moment. When our bodies give up, our souls and our spirits, I've classed those two together. I know some of you might want to make them separate, that's fine. Worth a great conversation one night over a glass of wine, we can chat about that. But just bear with me, I'm just going to call it, merge the two together. Our souls and spirit depart from our bodies and we are instantly with Jesus in paradise awaiting his return as he said to the thief on the cross this day you will be with me in paradise and we're with Jesus until he returns and we return with him and there's a great reunion those who are still alive on the earth will rise and meet us in the air and we will come with Jesus and we'll be given these earthly bodies and if you want an example of your beautiful eternal body may I present 
something it's not going to be like. <laughs> so you can aspire and think, yes, thank goodness for that, Lord. <laughs> but we will meet in the air and receive our eternal bodies. The Bible does not teach annihilation. Death is not an end for anybody, for our spirit is eternal, created in the image of God, even for the non-Christian, but we'll touch on that in a minute. <coughs> in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote... <coughs> oh, thank you. Did he turn it down then? Now, I'll turn away if it's going to be a bad one. That was just a little tickle. That was a lorry cough. The Jeff cough is going to be... In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote this. He says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Wouldn't you have just wanted to say to Paul, come on, give me a bit of a glimpse of what you saw in paradise. But there are things that are inexpressible that await those who have fallen asleep in Christ. We don't fear death, for death is a beginning or a continuation, definitely not an end. So let me move on to this week, <coughs> this, this part. What happens then when the non-Christian dies? Now you understand what I mean by non-Christian, non-Christian, lovely person, but they have not chosen to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. I'm not talking about religious person, I don't care if they're the Pope or a Bishop or an Archbishop or whatever. If they have not received Jesus Christ personally as the Bible teaches us and through that relationship receive the Holy Spirit and are demonstrating an evidence of a life living in faith and trust of God then they are an unbeliever, a non-Christian and so these are the people I'm referring to. So the soul or the spirit of those who do not know Jesus go immediately to a place of punishment Remember I said the spirit is eternal. There's no annihilation. So the spirit created in the image of God of the unbeliever goes to a place of, of punishment. This is sometimes called hell or Hades. Uh, I prefer Hades just because it differentiates it from hell. Hell is, is more, more commonly used as the place when the judgment of Christ has come, which we'll deal with I think in part four or five. Uh, but for now, it'll be Hades. So for the Christian, they go to paradise until judgment. For the non-Christian, they will go to Hades. And this is a place where unbelievers will await their final judgment whilst also suffering at the same time. Let me read you this sobering parable that Jesus told from Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what <coughs> fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, so he wasn't casual, he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in the fire. Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them, so that they will not come to this place of torment. <coughs> Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. There's a funny noise on there. Is that going to affect the recording? Or just affect me? <laughs> the purpose of that parable, and you have to be careful with parables not to go too far in them. They generally have a, a central purpose and then perhaps one or two others. But the purpose of that parable is to tell us there is no second chance. There is no opportunity. It describes the rich man in a place of torment. But also, it clearly tells us there's no second opportunity. The fact there is a conscious punishment for unbelievers when they die and go to Hades is a difficult doctrine for us to understand. And I appreciate we've all lost loved ones who we would probably think were not Christians. But the truth is, Scripture offers us no alternative. We have to be sensitive, compassionate and wise, but also have the integrity not to offer false hope. When Jesus returns, those still alive on earth, as I said earlier, and the spirits of believers and unbelievers will all receive an eternal body and the unbeliever will face judgment for rejecting Christ and rebelling against God. There's a picture of this. In Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the second death, the first death is obviously when you leave earth and the unbeliever goes to heaven, uh, unbeliever goes to Hades. What uh, John's describing here is the second death is then the judgment of Jesus comes after the unbeliever comes with the believer and receives their eternal bodies and faces 
judgment. Satan and his demons at that time will be cast into the lake of fire along with all believers, all unbelievers. I must get this right. I'm glad you picked up on that. Uh, For eternity. And this is the place that's described as the weeping and gnashing of teeth. I, I describe it this way. Hades and then hell after judgment is basically where God is not. God is love. God is peace. God is joy, mercy, kindness. God is fun. God is faithfulness. God is happiness. Whatever hell and Hades will be like, there will not be any evidence of God there. Everything that we who are created in the image of God enjoy and love and laugh about and sense and feel is all because of our being created in the image of God. When God removes his presence in Hades and hell, none of his attributes will be found in those places. So the unbeliever, when they die will go to Hades and they will be conscious in their spirits of knowing they've made a mistake. Knowing that they rejected Jesus Christ. Knowing that actually there is worse to come. There is judgment day to come. There is no rest in peace for the unbeliever. But the awareness of a punishment to come. On a lighter note, we used to have a friend who was a lovely Christian lady whose husband was a car mechanic. He wasn't a Christian. And one day he undid a radiator cap and boiling water burst out and burnt his hand. And she casually said, now you'll know what hell's going to be like. Not a good model of evangelism, I'd suggest, but there we go. Wives can get away with things like that. that Men certainly couldn't say that. It's not going to be a fun place but it's a real place and I say this to motivators to motivators in two ways one in our missional perspective but secondly as I'll come to in a minute to check my goodness I want to be absolutely sure that when I die I'm going to be in paradise and not Hades so the Bible teaches us that (coughs) there is no second chance for the unbeliever There's no place such as purgatory. That came from the Apocrypha. And if you want to know what that's about, talk to Duncan. uh, He's far more intelligent than I. He can explain all that. There is no way of getting you out of Hades, as we read in that parable, to get you back into heaven. So there should be no prayers offered for the dead. There's no prayers should be offered for the unbeliever. And what on earth can you pray for the believer when I'm actually in the presence of Jesus? Please don't pray, bring him back. <laughs> I really wouldn't be chuffed. Thirdly, there's no contact with the spirit world. Mediums, horoscopes, tarot cards, spiritual readings, all these things are works of Satan and his demons to draw you into something. Please do not be fooled, it's dangerous. Laurie and I over the years have ministered to people who have got caught up into this. And behind all of it is the work of Satan and his demons to draw you into something 
to turn your trust in God away to your trust in something else. People who claim that they can communicate with the dead are actually communicating with the demon masquerading as a dead person. Dear friends, Hades and hell are real. They offer no comfort, no hope. It is no joy. It's nothing to be light about. So I want to suggest, before I move on to the next point, part of this, we've got to be sure about our salvation. One thing that's always gripped me is I don't want to get to that place where we're all before Jesus. I don't quite know. I can't picture that, as I'm sure you can't, billions of people. But there'll be a time where we'll all come before Christ's seat of judgment and he'll separate the sheep from the goats and he'll look in his book of life and he'll say, ah, Jeff Moss, yeah, page 73 million 400, whatever. Yeah, I've got your list of works here. Well done, good and faithful servant. You could have done this. You could have. He probably wouldn't say that. But all that would be irrelevant because he'll say, you're in the book of life because I died for you. But I don't want to get to that place in my mind and see somebody in the other queue and look at me and say, why didn't you tell me? There's no chance now for me to cross over from my queue to yours. Why didn't you tell me? I don't want to be in that place. I don't ever and the danger is that we can have that even in the church, where we can have a little bit of religiosity. We can do a few Christian things. We can come, and we love you coming, and you're welcome to come, <coughs> whatever you believe. But we cannot offer you false hope that just by coming and doing a few Christian things or religious things somehow means you'll be in the right queue. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible wants to know, is God at work in your heart? Did something happen? Has something happened that you know that God himself is inside of you? Speaking to you, challenging you, convicting you, leading you. Is there evidence of faith in your life? Classic evidence of faith in my life is that I pray. I only pray because God can do stuff. No one else can. Do I live seeking to put him first, knowing that I'll mess it up and I'll get it wrong, that's fine, but is my desire to do that? I don't want anyone who ever knew me on that day to turn and see me and say, if only you'd told me. So how we view our death affects how we live, as I, said, as I said before. As a Christian, death holds no fear. But there is a day when my life will be measured according to the faith I have been given and how I've used that faith. And we'll touch on that more when we come to eternal rewards. Eternal rewards, what are they? That's just an advert to hook you in to come. I think that's three months away, so don't worry about it. You've plenty of time to read up. The certainty of heaven should motivate me to live each day for his glory. Not live in laziness or compromise. So I live to obey him, to worship him, to proclaim him and to persevere in him. Now one of my favourite films is Braveheart. You seen Braveheart? Oh come on, really? 
Well, maybe we'll show it one Sunday morning instead of a preach. What do you think now? No, okay. Okay, in Braveheart, William Wallace, this great, hairy, Scottish, rebellious warrior. He turns to, I think it's uh, Burns, anyway, anyway, he turns to one guy, and he says, I can't do a Scottish voice. He says, all men die, but not all men live. You know, I'm going to die one day. I'm going to leave this earth. But boy, do I want to make sure I've lived a life. Sure, I'll stumble. Sure, I'll fall over. Sure, I'll do stupid things. And probably I have some of those ahead of me yet. But boy, I want to live. I want to have lived a life where I've discovered God, experienced God, got it wrong with God, but tried with God. I don't want to live a safe life. Many years ago, I'm going totally off path. Many years ago, Laurie and I, when we first married, we went to Hong Kong. We both used to go there on business, and so we decided we'd go together. We read an autobiography. Was it biography? Biography. A biography of James Hudson Taylor, a missionary who went over in the 1800s, something, and started the China Inland Mission. And he had a whole life where he knew what God had called him to and he just said I am going to train myself in order to do it well and there's story after story and I remember walking around a swimming pool with shades on reading a particular passage which one day I may read to you it's quite long but it, it's moving we read it at a home group didn't we and half of us were crying and I was crying I was reading I was walking around this swimming pool and in my heart I cried God I don't care what I do for you ever but don't let it be boring. Don't let it be safe. I don't want a safe life. I hadn't seen Braveheart until then. Yeah, we'll all die. But I want to live in the time I've got. Don't you? This is just a brief moment. Come on, in light of eternity, this is a brief moment. So we want to give ourselves to everything we can. Do not be found on that day to have lived a life that is short, a life where you were so safe, you played it so casually, you discussed things for so long, you never got round and got on with them. Remember, at the end of the day, it's not that you know him that matters. You see, this parable of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus separated them. The sheep went to be with him, the goats went to eternal punishment. But actually, the point was, the goats thought that they should be with the sheep because they said, well, we did the same stuff as them. And Jesus says this sobering comment. He says, but I never knew you. You see, you can do the stuff, but never know the person of Jesus Christ because you haven't given your life to follow him and receive the Holy Spirit. Let's move on. How do we prepare for our journey home? Well, in a sense, we're in our journey home anyway, aren't we? So how do, how do we prepare? Well, I'm, got <coughs> I'm not going to read you the whole psalm. But in Psalm 90, a psalm that Moses wrote, he ends all the issues that he raises with God and he, and he basically says to God, look, all this is happening and has happened. 
Help me number my days, is his cry. Help me number my days. Help me live each day wisely. Help me not be casual about my life. Use what little time we have here on earth wisely with each day. <coughs> I'm going to read you a page and a half from a book by D.A. Carson. Some of you may have heard of Carson. He's a fantastic author and theologian. And it's entitled, How Long, O Lord? And it's Reflections on Suffering and Evil. So if you're ever in deep suffering yourself, it's very helpful for you. You know friends. I'd be careful about just handing a friend who's suffering a book. It's not, certainly read it yourself. But let me read you what he writes. He says, now let us suppose that your spouse comes home from a medical checkup with fearful news. There are signs that a vicious melanoma has taken hold. The hospital runs emergency tests during the next few days and the news comes back all bad. The prognosis is three months survival at best and all that modern medicine can do is mitigate the pain. <coughs> he says, I do not want to minimise the staggering blow such news can administer to any family. There are many forms of practical comfort and support that throughout people can show. But it must be said that if you are a Christian who has thought about these things in advance, you'll recognise that this sentence of death is no different in kind from what you and your spouse have lived under all your life. If you're living, numbering your days. That you've been preparing for this day since your conversion. That you have already laid up treasure in heaven and your heart is there. We are all under sentence of death. We're all terminal cases. The only additional factor is that in this case, the sentence, barring a miracle, will certainly be carried out sooner than you anticipated. I'm not pretending this bare truth is immensely comforting or comfort turns on other factors, but full acceptance of this truth can remove a fair bit of unnecessary shock and rebellion, for we will have escaped the modern Western mindset that refuses to look at death, to plan for death, to live in the light of death, or to expect death. Some time ago, I was told by my doctor that I had contracted a rather rare disease. The prognosis was uncertain. The disease varies in its power from being quite mild to being lethal. As months went by, it became evident that my case fell into the mild end of the spectrum. But the news gave me occasion to think about my reaction to the prospect of my own demise. Three years ago, I came down with a heart virus, which was at first wrongly diagnosed as a serious heart attack. Once again, I could not escape thinking about my mortality. The hardest part of dying, I decided, was leaving my wife and children. If the prognosis turned vicious, I decided, I would do everything I could with my remaining strength to make the transition as smooth as possible for my wife and to leave the stamp of a Christian father on my children. But apart from that one tie, I could not think of a single reason why dying would be so bad a thing. I confess with some shame that this assessment did not stem from prolonged meditation on the glories of Christ. With the Apostle Paul, I believed at last at the formal level that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That to, be, to depart and be with Christ is better, than far, is better by far. But I suppose I'm not spiritually mature enough for these realities to grip me incessantly. Sometimes they do, they do but I do not perpetually live in their light. But then I remember the fate of King Hezekiah. When he was under sentence, 
<clears throat> sentence of death. He begged the Lord for 15 more years and received the extra span. And in the course of those 15 years, he blew his entire reputation for integrity in one incident prompted by foolish pride. Nor was his reputation alone at stake. The bearing his action had on the future of his nation was disastrous. That's why I decided there are worse things than dying. I do not know how many times I have sung these words, Oh, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. But I mean them. I'd rather die than end up unfaithful to my wife. I'd rather die than deny by a, by a wasteful life what I've taught in my books. I would rather die than deny or disown the gospel. God knows there are many things in my past of which I'm deeply ashamed. I would not want such shame to multiply and bring, bring dishonor to Christ in the years to come. There are worse things than dying. A life not having a personal relationship with Jesus is the ultimate worst thing. But a life that hasn't numbered their days, a life that has been casual about serving and loving and being obedient to God, I don't want that. A life that has no faith and trust, a life that's never had to trust God in certain situations, a life that has always protected itself by its own wealth, its own resources, its own strength, <coughs> never knowing that God is faithful to his promises and can be trusted. I don't want that. A life never watching for the king's return. Neither do I want that. We prepare ourselves for our journey, journey home by numbering our days. Using our days wisely. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, We fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Where are your eyes fixed? What are you gazing upon? Do you live with your eyes fixed on his return? When you read through Acts, the early church always did. Read through Thessalonians. They loved, they lived every day. But of course you would. Because you're just as likely each Sunday to be discussing who'd got martyred the week before. Sometimes a bit of persecution is a bit good for us. It brings a bit of reality about what we're here for. Another great book. Finishing Strong by Steve Farrar. He says this. I do not know what God will do with you and me, but I know this. When we stand before the Lord one day, our lives will not be without meaning. No one is without a divinely appointed task. And the divine means for getting it done. But you ask, how will I know when my moment has come? How can I integrate and focus my life on that one duty God has given me for today? The world has a thousand necessities. Issues clamour every day for my attention. What will keep me from being manipulated by every cause and craze? Vision. Vision will enable you to keep your daily focus. Vision will enable you to be faithful each day. Vision will enable you to fix your eyes on Jesus. If you could go back in time 2,000 years to the times of the New Testament, it might give you some perspective. If you were to plant yourself <coughs> in a busy market 
near the temple in Jerusalem, you would gather some real insight. Stop and think what it would be like to randomly interview the citizens of Jerusalem as they went about their daily business in the times of the early church. You'd only need to ask them a couple of questions. Who do you think that people 2,000 years from now will remember from your generation? My guess is many of the citizens of the Roman Empire would answer Caesar or Nero. But what about this group of people known as Christians? Don't you think that anyone will remember them or their leaders? Are you kidding? That group of nobodies? They don't have any influence. They're not important. You mean you haven't heard of Paul or Peter? Don't you think they'll be remembered or Mary and Martha? Wasn't their brother involved in some miracle? I'm telling you, these people are insignificant. The only thing I ever hear of their leaders is that they're always winding up in jail. Trust me, in 2,000 years, nobody will give them a thought. So here we are, 2,000 years later. And isn't it interesting that we name our children Peter and Paul, Mary and Martha, and we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. (laughs) Dear friends, you need to have a vision for every day. Every day, you're here to live for the glory of God. It could be your last but don't waste a day of it. Don't build yourself into condemnation, okay? God's got purpose for you. Every one of us, today could be, your purpose is to be a great husband. Go home and cook the Sunday lunch. I'm excluded from that one. That's not my purpose today. Your purpose could be a great father, a great mother. Your purpose could be a great employee tomorrow, a great student. Your purpose could be to go to school tomorrow and befriend the one person that everyone else doesn't like. You've got a purpose every day to display the glory of God to other people. Number your days and use every one for his glory. Secondly, I've only got three. How do we prepare for our journey home? This one's obvious. Stay close to God. The more we know of his presence on earth, the easier it is to anticipate the delight of his presence on heaven. Isn't that true? Living well on our journey home is not about how long we've been at it, <coughs> but how much we know the person that we're going home to be with. It's wonderful about some, I can't remember, I think it's Yeovil. When we're in a church in Yeovil, uh, there's a couple that got saved in an Alpha course, youngish couple, about 30-something, uh, wonderfully saved, transformed through Jesus. And they went home, and then a, a few, maybe a couple of months later, her mother, a single lady, started coming to church because of the transformation she's seen in her daughter and husband. She started coming to church. She got wonderfully saved. A year later, she was dying of cancer. And Laurie and I had the opportunity to see her sometimes and pray with her and chat with her. Do you know, she had no fear, no conscience. She was still reveling in the beauty of this saviour that she just found. She'd only been a Christian a year, but in that year she had stayed close to Jesus and she lay on her bed and we prayed for her to be healed. But do you know, she wasn't that fussed about it. She knew the person she was going to go on to meet. We stay close by trusting him, not shielding ourselves from ever needing faith. 
but discovering he's faithful as we do the things he tells us to do. I'm always challenged by this thought, and I don't think there's a Bible verse for it. Maybe Duncan can find us one. There is no faith in heaven. Do you know that? I think I'm going off on one here. I'm not looking at Duncan in case I got this wrong. But I don't believe that there's any need for faith in heaven. How, why would we need faith for? So therefore, the only time I have in my eternity, and I'm going to be round, around for eternity, the only time is a brief window of 80, 70, some days it feels like 60, but it, whatever many years it may be, is a brief window in the expanse of eternity to demonstrate my love and faith to Jesus Christ. Because throughout all eternity, I don't need faith. He's there. I'm with him. My love will be the same as everyone else's. My obedience will be the same. But here now, right now, I have this chance. And I want to do it well, as well as I can. I, yeah, I make mistakes. But I want to do it well. I want to stay close to with him for my journey home. Philippians 1 says, He who began a work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to stop that, Robin. Stay close to your Saviour. And thirdly, and finally, okay, there's a bit of controversy in here, so brace yourselves. Not biblical controversy, Jeff controversy. <laughs> so, make practical arrangements. We've had the privilege over the years of ministering with many people and I, I, I seem to have become a bit of an expert at funerals. Actually, I love doing funerals. It's such a blessing to help people in their time. But the, the terrible ones are where people haven't organised things well. Where the deceased wouldn't talk about it or just kind of buried their head. So no one in the family knew if they had any wishes. The pastor, people in the church didn't know. Solicitors didn't know. And so the family were then left to work it out. I want to give you some advice. Families do not make good decisions in those early moments of grief. You help them and bless them by preparing beforehand. Now, Laurie has a great long list of what she wants. If she goes before me, she won't even care. She'll be with Jesus, so I and cut it down a little bit. For me, I just need a black bag chucked over a bridge somewhere. Won't worry me. I won't be there. But I don't think she'll do that. But dear friends, let your family know. Let your friends know. Let your pastor know what you want. And you don't have to reach a certain age before you do that, okay? Secondly, make a will. Make a will. Please, oh my goodness, I've seen families turn on each other, argue, steal things from each other because certain things weren't specified in wills. Make a will. Now, here's the controversy and this is, this is Jeff's thoughts, okay? I haven't mentioned this to the Duncan or the elders so it's not a church policy and it's not even a policy. So I've deliberately not mentioned it so that if you think I'm an idiot for it, that's fine. It's just my thoughts, and I did mention this once at a church some years ago. And a couple of people left the church as a consequence. So 
I want to assure you this is just me and my thoughts. I believe as a Christian, I'm a steward of everything God's given me. My money, my resources, my talents, they're God's. Everything I've got is from God. Nothing is mine. So all that I spend, all that I own, <coughs> all that I do with money particularly, <coughs> it's not mine I give God a bit. It's his. And I'm stewarding it for him. I'm using it to enjoy, but also for his purposes. So I've always felt that that does not end when I die. So I want to be a good steward when I die. So therefore, in my will, I want to reflect those stewardship principles. So now I haven't got children, so I totally get it's easy for me to say. And, I'm, and I re-emphasize, I am not telling you what to do. I love to throw things out and you work it out. You're not accountable to us in it. And it's not a church thing. It's just... I just hopefully will provoke a conversation that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise had. But because when I die, the culture is we take all our money and we divide it equally amongst our children or X, Y, and Z. But I would just suggest this. If we had children and they were not loving God and weren't interested in God or walking with God, Whilst, yes, I'd want to give them something as an expression of love, but I would not feel comfortable personally in simply giving them their proportion because it's God's money. Do you see? Now, how you work that through is for you guys, obviously, and it's your business. I don't want to know. But I do think it's something, and we had a very rich couple in the church at the time. I didn't realize, and their kids were... They had two children that weren't Christians at all. And they said some horrible things about me as a consequence. So that's why I'm being a little cautious. But I just put that out there. Make a will by every... You need to, to be wise, but also be aware that you're still the steward of God's money. So be careful what you do with it. Like, may I gently say, there's no such thing as a Christian donkey sanctuary in Bulgaria. We had some people who used to tell us, God's told me to give it to a donkey sanctuary in Bulgaria. Think, well, whatever. Not for me. But anyway, be wise. Make, it, make a will. And then thirdly, write a letter. Have you seen P.S. I Love You? Yeah, you see, more of you have seen that than Braveheart. So that worries me, that does. But in P.S. I Love You, he dies... Oh, Spoiler alert. He, anyway, he dies and he leaves her loads of letters for different stages of her life. It's a, it's a lovely story, very predictable, etc. But, you know, a nice chick flick. But, dear friends, if you know you're at a time and you haven't got long left, write a letter. Write a letter to your loved ones. Write a letter to make sure anyone who may feel you hold unforgiveness or anyone who's offended you, set them free. Funnily enough, you wouldn't believe this, but I don't lie. Yes, was it yesterday, sweet? Yesterday, Laurie gets an email from a couple in... Nine years. Nine, well, plus two, we've been out since two, haven't we? Anyway, so about ten years ago, this couple <laughs> offended us, although they didn't really, but they thought they did. I mean, they're just, just weird 
No, I wasn't saying that. <coughs> they just behaved in a... Yes, yeah, stop. Thank you. <laughs> Move on. Anyway, so we get this email, didn't we? And it says, Dear, dear Jeff and Laurie, we just want to apologise for how we... The hurt that we caused you nine years ago when we left the church. And we hope you'll forgive us. And I'm thinking, flipping it. And I'm just preparing this. I think that's it. And so I instantly thought, they must be dying. You know, something must be happening. They want to... <laughs> They want to clear the decks. Well, it's a wise thing to do. That's my point. Hey, seriously, I think that's wise if they are. That's good on them. Or maybe he's died. And she, anyway, look. But anyway, the point is, dear friends, write a letter. I should have replied to her, shouldn't I really say? Are you both there? <laughs> anyway, so let me summarize. Practical arrangements. Tell your family, friends of your wishes. Make a will. Consider your stewardship. You work that through. Write some letters to precious people. Bless them and go on. Actually, nowadays, letters, make a recording. One of the things we always say, Laurie and I, is we haven't got a recording of our parents' voice. Laurie's dad passed away a few years ago. My mum and dad have got no recording of their voice. It'd be lovely to do that. Get ready to make, meet Jesus. Because one day you're going to do. So quickly then, gosh, to round it up, you Christians, you're going to go to paradise. Hallelujah. Bring it on. You're non-Christian, Hades, place of punishment and suffering from which there is no return. Prepare yourselves for the unavoidable event of you passing away. Number your days. Don't waste your life. Don't live under an intense, oh, right, we've got to do something glory to God today. Live your life aware that this could be your last. Keep close to Jesus. Do you know it's easy to die if you've lived a life of faith where you've experienced him. You can trust him for what's going to happen next. Make practical arrangements. Tell your family of your wishes. Write a will. And I appeal to you, please, make sure there's no hesitation or doubt in your mind that you are born again, not just being a little bit religious, but actually there's a work of God going on in you that's demonstrated through your obedience and your lifestyle. Next time, in I think it's three weeks, we're going to look at the whole subject of grieving. How does the Christian grieve? And I'm going to touch on the delicate subject of what, what happens to the unborn child or someone who dies too young to have made, to have understood the gospel? So do pray for me as we get towards there. Shall we pray? Any questions about the Apocrypha or anything else? See Duncan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that we can look at this subject with a joy in our hearts, that actually we can come away from a talk about death inspired and excited at what you have in store for us I want to pray help us to number our days well help us to live each day for your glory help us to Lord God get things in place help us to be passionate for the plight of those who don't know you help us not to be casual about our own salvation to be sure that God himself dwells within us and bless each one of us and those who are listening on the tapes and the videos bless them also Lord God for your glory. Amen.